How did you and Jethro meet? We met at a permaculture party in, uh, what year would it have been, 2006? I don't actually remember having um, conversations with him that night. There was a lot of people and it was a big solstice party. It was dark and I didn't remember his name, but I remember being introduced to this guy who I didn't know and looking across this fire at this strange animated man wearing glasses with like crazy hair and that picture stayed with me. So when I was then reintroduced to him a couple of months later, he arrived at the party and everyone was like, oh, Claude, Jethro's looking for you. Jethro wants to give you these books. And I was like, who's Jethro? Like, what the hell? And he rolled into the room and it was just like, oh, you know, sort of like the sun came out. I was like, oh, my God, you're Jethro. And straight away I was like, you're my boyfriend. Like, I just knew it. And so, yeah, we spent the rest of that night inseparably kind of, yeah, I guess talking. And because it was another crowded permaculture party in a kitchen in this very small house in, you know, Unley in Adelaide, uh, we, yeah, he had me in the kitchen cooking um, and doing the work that, like, you know, he couldn't get in the kitchen and he wanted to make this meal. And so I was being his arms and legs sort of, oh, chop this onion, put that in there. Oh, no, a bit higher, turn it up. And we were making gnocchi together. And, yeah, that was the start of our relationship, really. From then on, we were we started catching up. And before you knew it, we had a baby in my belly. So <laughs> it was literally like three weeks later I was pregnant. <laughs> it was like very explosive. Welcome to Experiencing Life, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories in order to learn, connect, and grow. In this episode, we focus on death and dying, or more accurately, how we can celebrate life by encouraging open discussions of death and the rituals that follow. We'll learn about this from Claudia Peoples as she shares her story and that of her partner Jethro, who died in 2018 of motor neuron disease. We will also hear from Helen Roberts, who works as an end-of-life guide, helping people in the decisions surrounding death and through the grieving process. Here we go. I'm Claudia Peoples. I'm 44 and I live in the Aldinga Arts Eco Village in South Australia. What have you learned from being a parent? <laughs> what haven't I learned? I feel like parenting is the the growing that you do without knowing that you're going to grow. Like you get into it thinking that you're going to get one thing out of it, but it actually grows you in a way. Like you're growing a child and you're creating, you know, a world and a life for them, but they're also kind of doing that for you. I feel like it's the richest, most rewarding, challenging thing I have ever done. I can't imagine not being a parent. Like I absolutely love, I love the connection I've got with, you know, my daughter, you know, the age she's at every year she grow, you know, she gets older. I'm like, this is the best age ever. And I just keep on thinking that like it hasn't changed since she was, Eight months old, I remember going, this is the best age ever. And it just, yeah, I really do love it, yeah. You lived in India for six months. Was that a life-changing experience? I don't know that I'd call it life-changing. It was a bit more, we lived a kind of normal life because in India, usually 
I guess you travel and you you're living there. You know, you're you're seeing it in a way that a tourist sees it. Whereas we were living and we had very normal experiences with you know friends that we made and you know going and eating dinner and having ch- tea at people's houses and yeah Jethro was um, you know he got a scholarship so he was at a university and um you know part of the academic world there and Finn and I fitted in around that we'd meet him for lunch we'd go for coffee in the morning together we'd ride our bikes to the market Finn went off to school you know it was all very normal it was it was life changing in that we were so outside our normal but we created a different sort of normal when we were there. Yeah. And that was, yeah, it was a good experience, like such a, a beautiful, rich experience being in a place like that. Jethro had developed problems with his shoulder, which he attributed to RSI from the long hours spent working at his computer. But as more symptoms developed, it became apparent that something more sinister was the cause. There was a few different things that didn't really make sense. Like when he'd have a drink, he'd become really slurry in his speech. And then in Goa, towards the end of our time in India, uh, we were having running races on the beach and I kept on beating Jethro. And he's, he was quite athletic and certainly faster than me, you know, um, in his prime. And he just couldn't coordinate his running. And he was like, and he was, oh, he'd always um, prided himself on um, being like a mountain goat on rocks. And there was all these rocks on, you know, we were scrambling over at this, you know, um, beachside area. And he just couldn't jump from rock to rock. His balance was really off and he was sort of on hands and knees almost. And we were both like, what is happening? After six months, Claudia and Finlay returned home, whilst Jethro continued his work in India. There he consulted a doctor about the symptoms he had developed and motor neuron disease was considered the most likely cause. Back home in Australia, that was not a diagnosis Claudia was willing to accept. Let's not jump to conclusions like that's the first person you've seen. Let's get a few more, you know, tests. And he went and saw some of the most highly regarded doctors in both Kolkata and then in Delhi um, to get second opinions. And it just was so overwhelmingly, you know, obvious to all those medical, you know, people that it was motor neuron disease. His, you know, reactions when they did all the tests were just showing up. Um yeah, that it was motor neuron disease. So, Motor neuron disease, also known as ALS, describes a group of diseases in which the nerve cells controlling muscles die. This affects a person's ability to move, speak, breathe and swallow. Um, and I remember being on the phone in Australia hearing um, he had me on speakerphone with the final doctor who was like the biggest, most amazing specialist that he'd fought to see in this crazy um, hospital where you had to line up for hours and you know you had most people had advocates to be with them and he didn't have anyone so he was battling lines of you know it was a really big open public hospital um, and he'd have to line up for hours and hours to get in finally saw this doctor had me on speakerphone and I was in Australia it was nighttime the doctor said to Jethro you know it's definitely motor neuron disease and Jethro asked how long do you think I've got and the doctor was like you know, you might have somewhere between two and five years. And I just was like, no. And I like yelled through the phone. I was like, you can't say that. And I got so angry. And I was obviously like crying like it was, yeah, horrendous. Finney came running in, like hearing me cry and um, just hugged me. She, was, she didn't know what was going on or, what you know, what was being said. 
And I, luckily, my family all came in. I was like encompassed in this big hug. But um, Jethro, yeah, he wasn't crying on the other end of the phone. I think he was quite solid in it um, somehow. Maybe he knew, you know, he'd had all that time to get used to, you know, that week. It wasn't all that time. It was like a week, but he'd obviously been reading. He was that sort of person. Um, yeah, whereas that was a real shock for me. Mm. a lot of grieving happened in those early months just the adjusting to the idea because motor neuron disease is terminal obviously there's exceptions um and it's not straightforward you know the decline in most people it's so so different nobody could put a timeline on it but the idea of terminal does something to you it certainly changes yeah the way i looked at everything you know everything most mostly around Finn and the loss of her dad that's where I think I grieve the most the idea of him not seeing her grow and her not having him um yeah Buddhism had already been a part of Claudia and Jethro's lives but following his diagnosis Jethro decided to undertake additional study yeah, he went straight to see the head of the type of Buddhism that we had been following and got advice from um, yeah, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, who's uh, yeah, a very highly realized sort of Buddhist leader in India. Uh, Jethro went and um, yeah, stayed and studied Buddhism at this in his library and got all these you know extensive practices that he had to do for his mind because he wanted to know how to die well. That was the first thing that came up for him was how to prepare his mind for what was going to happen um, to his body and how to get through it in the best way he could. That was important for Jethro, I think, to to get his head around it. He needed to kind of go through that first year. And that first year he lost most of his abilities. He, you know, was diagnosed in January and by November he was more or less in a wheelchair full time Claudia became Jethro's full-time carer, and with Jethro's decreased mobility came new challenges. I'd have to get him positioned exactly right, and sometimes that positioning would take like 15 minutes just to set him up with his head on a bolster, leaning forward in his wheelchair, supporting his head and you know the rest of his body so that he could breathe. And there were some challenges, like there was you know, challenges the whole way through he and I were not very similar in the way we lived and the way we did things. And so I was having to, I guess, represent him and and intuit what he wanted and what he needed. And that wasn't always easy. Like there was often friction or tension because I wasn't getting it right or, you know, he yeah, me misinterpreting things. Like the frustration for him, I can imagine, would have been huge. <laughs> Having someone who's nothing like you try and do things for you um, was challenging. And, that, you know, that was so tricky so much of the time. And he was, you know, he was often angry, not to anyone else, but he was angry at me for not doing things the way he wanted, which is understandable. But it wasn't always easy to take that frustration and anger and and to manage it. 
and he didn't much care what people thought. So sometimes he was rude to people and I, I, I couldn't handle that. I wasn't great at, you know, him discounting people who were there with kindness and, you know, really trying to, to help him. Um, sometimes I found that challenging. Claudia was in need of support herself. Unfortunately, she had lots of loving people around her. Through this experience, I felt like I was being supported really well by my really close family and friends who were constantly checking in with me and making sure that I was okay. Um, I was seeing a counsellor every two weeks, which certainly helped me with my managing my grief, managing my experience, letting me download all of the anger and frustration. I was feeling often at Jethro, I guess, resenting the change in him, the change in our relationship, the change, you know, his reliance on me was not easy. I know sometimes I really did feel like um, I was living out that carer story, that feeling of nobody understands this, nobody knows what I'm going through, nobody knows how I feel, nobody sees all of this crap that happens behind the scenes. And I didn't necessarily want everyone to feel sorry for me or to, you know, I didn't want to have to tell everyone that, but it's a feeling, you know, that you'd feel quite alone in and nobody else can go through that with you. But I, yeah, despite that, I did feel um, I had a lot of love, like a lot of love from a lot of different people. Mm. As Jethro's motor neuron disease progressed, he found breathing increasingly difficult. Eventually, he chose to have a tracheotomy, a tube placed in his throat to assist with his breathing. At times, he also required a ventilator when his breathing became particularly bad. He tried not to rely on the ventilator, but in his last few days of life, Jethro was unable to breathe without it. And that was quite scary for him initially. Um... And, oh, I guess the whole time it was quite scary for him. And I remember him saying, oh, I know I need to, you know, just stop breathing, but I can't. Like, it's actually really hard to just choose to die. He, he still had all of his organs and his heart and everything was still working so strong. And so, you know, in such a normal way, we, we figured he could live on that ventilator for quite a long time. No one knew when it was going to happen. And so Finney was heading off to school and had said to him, don't you die while I'm at school, Papa Jay. And um, we were sitting having a cup of tea and breakfast on the bed and I noticed a change in his breathing and we, um, I just yeah said to Finn, come here, and she held his hand and, yeah, slowly he did just stop breathing, which was quite amazing and, and I think not like quite conscious and, you know, eventually he, he did die quite peacefully on, in the morning. Where did the name Papa Jay come from? <laughs> he just was insistent from when he first, I guess, when we first found out we were pregnant, he just decided he wasn't going to be a dad. He was like, everyone else is a dad. And he forced her, like when she was first learning how to speak, you know how babies automatically do the dad, dad, dad. He was like, Papa Jay, it's Papa, Papa, Papa. And then it became Papa Jay. Yeah, it just happened. I don't even know. Yeah, it was quite funny. 
I think we talk about him all the time. There's no a day really that goes by when there's not a reminder or a moment where I look at a photo or, you know, Finney will, you know, bring something out that was his or ask a question or he's just still, you know, he's just, I think after a person dies, you just live with them in a different way. Inspired by Buddhist culture, what followed next is quite different to what many in the West would experience following a death. The house became an open house and so for that week we kept him at home on dry ice and had the village and family and friends sort of coming through our house saying goodbye to him. Vinny and my best friend Anna and I slept out in the lounge room um, right near his body for that week. Um, we'd say good morning and good night to him. We had Buddhist mantras playing in the background the whole time. This, um, So the days were spent, yeah, with the house kind of full of people, family, friends. Yeah, sitting with Jethro. Sometimes it was happy, sometimes it was sad. And then, yeah, by the Friday, um, yeah, we had planned the funeral and the village more or less jumped into action and created this amazing event where um, just outside in the she-oaks near our house. Um, the coffin was carried by his mates and propped, surrounded by flowers. And yeah, it was a beautiful outdoor sort of celebration of his life. It didn't feel so much like a funeral. And he never was very attached to the idea of a funeral. He was, he just said, by then it's your thing, Claude, you do what you want to do. I was like, what about songs? What about, you know, because he was never afraid to talk about death. I think through all of that time of him knowing he was going to die right from even that first year, he was never afraid to talk about the fact he was dying. He allowed people to ask questions and I certainly was, you know, very comfortable answering on his behalf or, you know, helping him answer, yeah, all sorts of questions, which meant the atmosphere around us became very real. That idea of connection and when someone's dying, life is only real. Like there's nothing left but the real connection and there's no room for crap or falseness or anything but yeah but real connection and I think that became quite addictive for a lot of people to be around an atmosphere where it's so true and a friend wrote a song for Jethro oh that was the most amazing gift at the funeral like within yeah four days of him dying um the beautiful Lauren Kate had written a song that felt like it was channeled from him. The way it's written and the feeling of it is like he's, yeah, he's just telling Finn particularly that he's going to be with her, like I'm going to be with you, I'll be there sort of no matter what. And, yeah, that is just a gift that she will never know, you know, how special. Yeah, that's amazing. Not many people get that, I don't think. Morning songbird, I am each colorful shirt. I am everywhere you need me. I am everywhere you need me. Though you can't see me, I am here. 
You can hear the complete song at the end of this episode, along with details of where to find Lauren Kate's music. Jethro Adams died in 2018 at the age of 46. He devoted time to learning and talking about death because, as Claudia said, he wanted to know how to die well. For many people, death is an uncomfortable subject to discuss. Even talking about one's end-of-life wishes is often avoided. But open conversations can help us to prepare for death and the grieving process. We will now hear from Helen Roberts, who works as an end-of-life guide. Hi, I'm Helen, and I'm currently an end-of-life guide in Adelaide, South Australia. My work is a non-medical role that provides service and support for those people who are dying and their families. I can be involved in um, helping people from uh, diagnosis of a terminal or life-limiting illness uh, right up until um, supporting families after um, death into bereavement. Even when people are healthy, I come and help them fill out advanced care directives or just advise them about um, what they need or what they could have, um, a death plan, uh, which can include things like um, leaving uh, legacy documents, you know, a, a recipe book or um, a video song or a whole range of things um, for people. And they can do that when they're healthy, um, not if they know they're dying. Um, so that you're prepared. So when the time comes, people don't have to make difficult decisions in a time of emotional um, distress. How did you come to work in this field? I chose a career in nursing and I moved fairly rapidly towards intensive care nursing. And so I spent 28 years working at the Women's and Children's Hospital in the paediatric intensive care unit, where I learned a lot about um, life and a lot about death. Um, I'd always had a fascination for death. Uh, I came from a family where we spoke about death as a normal part of life. I decided after 28 years to change pace and I became a photographer and I quickly sought out um, something that would give me both working with families in difficult times and photography and I found heartfelt and so Heartfelt is a voluntary organisation throughout Australia that provides photographic memories for families who have suffered stillbirth, extreme extreme prematurity and have children who are um, dying or, or have died. After a few years, I realised that what I was photographing with Heartfelt really was where my heart was and I looked around and I came across the soul midwives who are in um, the UK, and I did some study, and that was about eight years ago. And I'd imagine when some people learn what you do for a job, they're quite shocked. <gasps> yes. Oh, why would you do that? It must be so sad. I couldn't think of anything worse. Or, or oh, really? And then the topic of conversation is just instantly changed. If people ask me what I do, though, I'm fairly forthcoming. I always say I'm a heartfelt photographer because heartfelt's not an easy thing to get out in the public. But often it opens up amazing discussions with people and also often allows people to share their story. 
As our culture has become more reliant on nursing homes and hospitals for the care of our sick and elderly, Helen believes our relationship with death and dying has changed. Yes, I think, you know, even the way we've died's changed. The people used to die of infectious diseases mostly, um, and it used to be sudden. Now we die from chronic diseases, and it's often very prolonged. We, we handed death over um, 100 years ago to funeral parlours and hospitals. We've just become very removed. I mean, I, there is a swell now um, back to keeping your loved ones at home after death. It's a, it is a love, beautiful thing to have your loved one with you for a time and for you to say goodbye to the body and not for the body to be whisked away before you've had the opportunity to be with them. And that process can be five days at home. Um, there are some legislations around the country that are different but and generally people find three days is enough. They can then start to see the changes and they are even, it might only be two hours, but when we can say dad's not here anymore, if this is just his body, and we can say goodbye to that body, then that feels good for us rather than somebody dying, ringing the funeral parlour, uh, my dad's died, please come and pick up his body. They are sort of just whisked away and there's no time for you to come to terms with the fact that your loved one's died and I I do think it I think the research has showed that that really helps with the grief process and that was a sentiment that Claudia also shared yeah I can't imagine that feeling of having your loved one uh, the grief and the trauma that I imagine that must bring up we had five days of saying goodbye to him and adjusting to the fact that he he his presence was there, but he wasn't. Um, and that was really, really good for our healing and for, yeah, I guess adjusting to life without him, which we'd been preparing for, but you can't prepare really for what that's going to feel like until it happens. And I'm so, so glad that we did that and gave ourselves that time because the moment we put him in the back of that van and I actually had to let him go was not an easy moment like that was a horrendous like the feeling of you know permanence of that moment was really really hard and for that to have happened five days earlier with none of that beautiful grieving that had happened it would have been yeah impossible knowing what options are available is a big part of what an end of life guide can offer Another way people can acquire such information is by attending a death cafe. A death cafe is really a place people gather, an open place to speak about what they want. Uh, there's no set agenda. Um, the conversation can move all over the place. Um, people share their stories. Uh, it's a facilitated discussion to a point. People are often surprised at what they find out at a death cafe and they're often quite excited and empowered and positive at the end of it. And people thought, think, they say, oh, I thought this was going to be grim and dark, but it was empowering and I'm excited and we laughed and we cried. But once you've thought about it and made a plan, you can get on with living and life is, you know, 
you can live your life right up to the moment before you actually die. And, and you can. I've seen it. If we could have more open discussions, we'd, I honestly think we'd change the world. <laughs> and that's a big call. <laughs> the idea of photographing a loved one after they've died or their funeral is perhaps confronting for some people. We may associate these events with painful memories that we don't wish to recall. But Helen has this to say. I feel really strongly that, you know, in this day and age, we photograph everything. I mean, we photograph our food and all sorts of things. And I think the end of life can be such a special time and such a time of love and care that why wouldn't we photograph it? All of those things are beautiful. Um, special times, special memories. I just think it's part of life. Photographing a funeral, I think, is a really good idea. Funerals are places, again, where there's family and love. And the family, particularly on the day, sometimes when they look back over the years, they can't remember who was at the funeral. They can't even remember the small details. And I think to photograph it gives us those memories to look back on and remember. Um, again, I, I think because we're sort of living in a death-phobic world, which I know is improving, people really just don't think to photograph the end of life. But it is available and it's obviously it's not for everybody, but there are some people where those sort of things will make a difference. A lot of parents don't take up the offer, but when parents do, they look, they, they are so pleased even if they weren't sure at the time, that they have the memories of their children. I think a fear for a lot of parents is that they forget their children over the years, um, which I'm sure isn't true, but some people say that. And these memories serve to remind them every single day of um, their baby or their child uh, and the love that they felt for them, uh, which is a beautiful thing. Mm. Mm. And how do you know what to say to these families? To the families that I walk into for heartfelt, you know, um, I really avoid, I'm sorry for your loss. I, it's standard. It's sounds canned to me. And when I say I'm sorry, it's about me. And, and this isn't about me. I could say, and I often do, I'm really sad to f- that you, you have to experience this. If it was a friend, I'd sort of say, I just know that I care and I'm here for you. If you listen and truly listen with this one mouth, two ears, that's the the best thing to do. And if you don't know what to say, you say that. You say, I don't know what to say. Do you feel you're at risk of taking on other people's grief? Oh, there is certainly a risk, but I think boundaries are really important in this work sometimes because it's easy to get lost in it, um, especially when you become... You know, if you're working with a family for a long time or even a short time and you have a bond, um, you're, you will be sad um, and you c- could take on their grief. Um, but I, I don't because the bottom line is it, it isn't about me. It's about them and their experience and their grief. And I can come home and I can do my grief and process it. I have 
I light lots of candles. I do think about, I give myself sort of time frames. Um, I allow myself to feel how I feel and um, I process that and then in a, in a few days' time I'm usually uh, right and ready to move on. The beach is my place of restoration and solitude and also my art. Um, so, yeah, you have to be careful. Helen believes there are huge opportunities for schools to engage in greater discussions about death and dying, and doing so will help children navigate a variety of difficult changes in their lives. Claudia and Jethro were always honest with their daughter when tough questions came up. I, I just believe that kids are a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. I let her, in her own time, discover what was going on for her dad. Then I guess initially she had no idea that motor neuron disease meant that you died. And we did not rush that. I was always honest. No matter what she asked, I would answer with the real answer, not a fluffy version of it. And when she asked, do people from, you know, do people who get motor neuron disease die? I said, yes, they do die. No one can say when. Some people might live for 50 years. Some people might live for one year. And Papa Jay is somewhere in there. And yeah, you know, he will die, but nobody can tell us when. Conversations about death and dying may be tough, but planning for this inevitable event can lead to better outcomes later. Discuss with your family, your doctor, your death doula, what your wishes are. Starting the conversation can help clarify points you may never have considered. And these discussions are not just for the elderly or for those with a terminal illness. They used to say um, the only two things in life that were certain were death and taxes, but taxes aren't even certain now, so death's it, and we're all going to do it. A good place to start is to complete an advanced care directive, sometimes referred to as a living will. These documents help inform family members and medical staff about your wishes. Do you want to receive CPR? Do you want to donate your organs? Do you want to be buried or cremated? Do you want Tom Waits or Van Morrison played at your funeral? All the important stuff. It is important, though, to not only have an advanced care directive, but to discuss your wishes with your family members or substitute decision maker and to have these documents available to those who might be caring for you, such as nursing home staff or paramedics. You can find locations and other information about Death Cafes at deathcafe.com. You can find Helen Roberts via her website. Which is www.gracefuldying.com. I also have a Facebook profile, again called Graceful Dying. I remember, so the blurry, like maybe six, easily six months went past where I was, you know, operating fine. Most people would have thought, oh, Claude's quite normal and Claude's, you know, back to her usual self. But I remember going off to a um, market gardening workshop and I was surrounded by people who did not know me as Claude and Jethro, didn't know me as... Um, for any of the experience that I'd had with my, you know, dying partner, I was there in my own capacity as a just another participant in the course. 
And I remember finding myself laughing in a way, like there was this joy bubbling up in me, like that just hadn't been there. It was like a big cloud lifted from me. And I came back into realize who I was and like all these parts of me came back to life that weekend which was a very strange I didn't realize they weren't operating or they weren't there um but that it was such a clear a clear shift in me um where I guess I had lost an awful lot of myself through the experience that I wasn't I wasn't aware of I just let it go or I just got on with it Mm. What are you grateful for today? Today I'm grateful to be alive. I am grateful every morning I wake up. I'm grateful to be loved. I'm grateful to be warm. (laughs) And I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my work with other people. I'm grateful that I had Jethro even if it was just for, you know, the short time we were together. Um... I am grateful for, yeah, having an amazing daughter, having a family that I love, having friends that support me. Um, I'm mostly grateful for my body being strong and healthy. (laughs) Yeah, I think I live a really good life. I think I'm really blessed, Um, yeah, in the life that I've been gifted with. Mm. My name is Bo Summer, and I am grateful for my wife, Jodie, for her love, support, and valued feedback. This episode of Experiencing Life is dedicated to you, Jodes. My thanks to Claudia Peoples and Helen Roberts for sharing their stories. Thanks also to Lauren Kate for contributing her song, I'll Be, which you can download from Bandcamp. You can discover all of Lauren Kate's beautiful music on her website, Lauren Kate. Dot com.au spelled L-O-R-E-N-K-A-T-E. Thank you for listening. Stay up all night with me, my darling. I want to feel you right by my side Run your fingers through my head again and again and again Tell me stories sing me prayers and whisper all things I need to hear These eyes won't see another sunset But our love it has no end Our love it has no end I'll be the wind in the trees I'll be the storm out at sea I'll be the laughter in your ears I'll be the mud beside
between your toes Our love is filled up our home I am everywhere you need me When the morning light comes creeping through my window And the rain is threatening to fall Lay me on my side so I can see it clear And hold my hand while I I'll be the storm out at sea I'll be the laughter in your ears I'll be the mud between your toes Our love has filled up our home I am everywhere you need me I am This body's too weak to hold my soul in My spirit's too wild, it's time to set it all free I'll be the wind in the trees, I'll be the storm out at sea I'll be the laughter in your Between your toes Our love has filled up our home I am everywhere you need me I am the light in the dark I am electrical sparks I am the sail that steers your boat Songbird, I am each colorful shirt. I am everywhere you need me. I am everywhere you need me. Though you can't see me, I am here. Um, as an aside, I also we got Jethro's um, ashes. He chose to be cremated, and it was quite a windy day. And we had um, um, Anna's four-year-old son Jude. We were all blowing Jethro ashes off our hands into the wind, 
and I breathed in just as Jude blew the blew the ashes, and I got a whole face full of Jethro. So he's living inside me, like, <laughs> yeah, funny. <laughs>